Jocko Willink, in addition to having one of the coolest names in the history of ever, is a retired Navy SEAL. He is a fascinating guy who, along with his partner Leif Babin, his, his business partner Leif Babin, they have created a business consulting group out of their experiences in the SEAL teams and consult with businesses and nonprofits around the world. I, I think we've got a picture of Leif during his years in the teams. This is Leif, and this is, sorry, this is Jocko. Jocko Willink, when he was with the teams. Now, this was when he was serving in the military. I want to show you a current picture of Jocko. Let me show you the next picture of Jocko. That's an intense dude. I don't care who you are right there. That is a fascinating guy. He and his business partner, Leif Babin, have written a New York Times number one bestseller entitled Extreme Ownership. It's a fascinating book. It's incredible for leadership in the marketplace and in the home place, by the way. Helping kids take ownership of their lives and responsibilities around the household that's not what their intent was, but that's kind of what I read into it. It's a fascinating book, a great read. But as intense as Jocko is, he's actually very, very funny. And in order to fully appreciate Jocko's sense of humor, you need to follow him on Twitter because he is a hilarious tweeter. Now, you wouldn't think that about a former Navy SEAL, but he tweets funny. And almost every single day that Jocko wakes up out on the West Coast, between 4 and 4.30 a.m., he will post a picture of his wristwatch and the time that he's getting up to begin his day and start working out. Here, here's just one example of it. 4.10 a.m. He's on the West Coast and beating most of us up. And this is his caption, go get it. Now, if you've never heard Jocko, he's got one of the most downloaded podcasts on iTunes. It's incredible. So he'll post like something like, go get it. Here, here's another one that I really liked. Sometimes he'll kind of wax poetic and get a little philosophical. He'll say this, hesitation masks itself as, the, as thoughtlessness and prudent caution. Do not believe. That's at 4.34 a.m. That, that's called waking up with the eye of the tiger right there. I mean, he, he wakes up on edge. Here's another one. I love this one. This is a picture of the floor after he's worked out. Aftermath. Stop looking for the answers and start doing burpees. You will find what you are looking for. <laughs> now that, that dude is hardcore. But you know, if you go to Jocko's website, there, there's a, a series of t-shirts and stuff that you can buy from Jocko.com, Jocko's podcast or whatever the website is. And there was one that, that I, I discovered a few months ago that I thought was absolutely fascinating. It was this t-shirt right here. It says, discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom. Now, I, I discovered that motto you know, several months ago. And since then, I have been absolutely amazed and fascinated at how universally true that is in every single part of life. When I'm more disciplined in my sermon preparation, then I've got more freedom when I stand up here. I can, I can kind of pull a Peyton Manning and Omaha, Omaha, and I audible. But I do that because of the freedom that comes from the discipline of preparation. I, I think about, we all know this to be true, certainly physically. The more disciplined we are in how we fuel our bodies and what we feed ourselves and how frequently we train physically and how hard we train, then we're going to have more freedom 
physically, we're going to be able to do more longer as we age and, and the effects of gravity and time begin to wear and tear on us. Discipline equals freedom. I, this was true when our kids were, were still at home and in high school. I remember Emily and Joseph, when they got into high school and you know school starts to really intensify and everything goes on the record and colleges, you know one day we'll be looking at it. But let's be honest, when you're in the ninth grade, you're not really thinking about, I really am going to buckle down on this algebra test so that I can get into a good college. Or at least my kids didn't do that. I know I for certain didn't do that when I was in high school. I remember taking algebra in the ninth grade and thinking, this is the biggest waste of time. I will never use this ever in my life. But students, let me just tell you this. What is fascinating, and I have found since I was in high school, algebra is one of those things that I have never used ever in my life. <laughs> There's never been a time where I've, I've kind of found myself in the middle of my day thinking about geometry. What is the cosine of blah, blah, blah? I, never. I've never done that. But what I discovered and what I tried to share with Emily and Joseph as a dad, Julie and I tried to share with them, is the fact that Discipline equals freedom. I told my kids, I said, listen, I, I know you're not digging algebra right now, and, and it's not going to change your life. I'm not going to lie to you. It's awesome. And, and God bless algebra teachers. Everybody, let's say amen. Thank you. But what I explained to Emily and Joseph was, here's the thing you've got to understand. You both like your father, and certainly your mother, you, you like to have options. You, you like to be able to make up your own mind and not have the menu of choices shrunk before you ever get to decision-making time. So if you will do your work, if you will apply yourself, just do your best. I'm not talking about you don't have to make straight A's. You have to do your best. You have to work hard. If you'll do that, you'll have more options. What I was explaining to them is what Jocko says. I call that the Jocko doctrine. Discipline equals freedom. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. That the more disciplined I am in my, my prayer life, uh, carving out that time and setting the phone and the computer and the tweeter aside and just talking to God and listening to God, the more disciplined I am in in reading the Bible and allowing the Bible to read me and ingesting Scripture spiritually, the more freedom I experience, the more peace I have. And this morning as we wrap up this series, Peace Out, we wrap up this series at a pivot point. It's a pivot point within the series as well as a pivot point within the calendar. What I mean by that is, for the last few weeks, we've looked at the, the promise of peace that God makes to anyone who would follow Christ. We, we know that God has promised anyone who surrenders their life, who takes up their cross and follows Jesus, a, a peace that passes perception. Like, like we, you can't even get your mind around it, but you can absolutely experience it. And, and as you experience it, God not only wants us to and calls us to, but he expects us to express it and share it with as many people as we possibly can. And we looked at the, the first week, we kind of established the baseline of that promise of peace. But then we also, in the second week of the series, we talked about the essential practice 
of peace, that essential practice of worship, of acknowledging that he is God and we're not, and, and worshiping him in his holiness and his moral perfection, and lifting him up in that reality, and then living everything that we do, every word, every action, every choice, as an expression of worship. We, we talked about the fact that God has called us into a partnership of peace sharing. Remember, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men and women, and, and you will see people come to know Christ through you. And we said, remember that one fish will change your life, that, the, that there's a peace that comes from introducing somebody to Christ and maybe seeing them baptized because you got out of your comfort zone and decided to pray for them by name. You maybe invited them to a worship service or had a cup of coffee with them and, and explained to them the goodness of God in Jesus and what that looks like, and they stepped into it. Last week we talked about the, the practice of financial peace and, and the tithe and, and all of the blessings of God and the promises of God that that unlocks in our lives. And, and you'll notice as I've kind of recounted where we've been, the reality is that, that all of those things have been very, very practical. They, they've been incredibly temporal in their nature. To be sure, they've got an eternal aspect and component to them that come from God. But they've all been very much about how we experience the peace of God that passes perception day in and day out. But today, we pivot. We pivot from the, from the here and now and the temporal to the there and the then, the eternal. Today, we look at the fact that it's an eternal peace that God calls us to that has implications for us here and now, but the peace that we experience here and now, as great as it is, as real as it is, pales in comparison to the peace that is to come, to, to what God has promised for those who love him, for those who will follow Jesus. And so we, we pivot from kind of like down and dirty here and now to a high out, kind of a 30,000 foot perspective, if you will. But it's also a pivot point because it's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a, is a pivot point on our calendar just like it was a pivot point in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he roamed the earth 2,000 years ago. We know, of course, that Palm Sunday is the, the day on our calendar when we mark the moment of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When, when he rode into Jerusalem on, on the back of a, of a small donkey and the, the streets of Jerusalem were lined with people worshiping and praising him and, and shouting, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And they were, they were waving palm leaves at him like, like he was royalty, as they understood royalty, as they hoped royalty would be. But it was a pivot point because less than seven days later, the same people who were worshiping and praising and waving palms were the same people who were shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Take him away. We'd rather have Barabbas the murderer than Jesus the teacher. Crucify him. That was a pivot point. It was a pivot point in history. It was a pivot point that we mark today on Palm Sunday. 
But in order for us to, to make that pivot, in order for us to get from the temporal to the eternal, from the, from the here and now to the there and the then, and to, to fuse them in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts, we, we, have, to, we have to adjust our mindset. We, we, have to, we have to change the way that we, we think. Because the fact of the matter is, our, our default mindset is messed up. Our default perspective is jacked up in a way that we don't even understand apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But once the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, then we can begin to move from that default mindset, that defaulty mindset, to a divine mindset, a divine perspective that God makes available to us in his amazing grace. To get at this, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If it's on your phone, check out 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to get to verse 18 in just a moment. But I want to remind you, in 1 Corinthians, if you'll remember throughout our year so far, we're already into April. Can you believe that? Throughout our year, we have spent a good bit of time in 1 Corinthians, that letter from Paul to the fledgling church there in Corinth that we know the Holy Spirit inspired him to write and, and, and help to communicate and protect as it was translated down through the centuries. But it was written initially to help the church at Corinth understand how the gospel infuses every part of life with the peace, with, with the purposes of of God and the church at Corinth had its challenges like every church ever since. The church by definition is a hospital full of sinners. I've shared with you before when I was growing up in Houston, my pastor, Dr. Ed Young, used to tell us when I was a kid, he said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't you join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> that's, that's preacher humor from a ways back and he's absolutely right. We're by definition a dysfunctional family striving to, to love and follow Jesus. That's what the church is. And, and it's within that context that Paul was helping those first century Corinthians understand how the gospel matters. How, how does it play out, not only in the church, but also in their lives personally. And in verse 18, he gives us kind of a, a, a roadmap to begin to understand how we make this pivot from the temporal to the eternal. Check this out and see what he says. Verse 18, he says, The message of the cross, that's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of of the intelligent. The message of the cross is foolish. Here's what Paul is saying in a nutshell. He's telling us we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Matter of fact, right now I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them you don't have a clue. Hopefully you were smiling as you said that. Now I want you to take a little bit bigger risk and turn back to the same person 
and tell them with a smile on your face, I don't have a clue either. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue as to the mindset and the perspective of God apart from the intervention of God. It requires the Holy Spirit to reveal to me, to reveal to you the wisdom of God because it is absolutely counter-cultural, counter-intuitive to anything that the world has to offer. It is, it's, it's foolishness. It's crazy apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's funny that Paul would say this because we know that when Paul came to know Jesus, Paul had a, had a dramatic encounter with Christ. No one has ever had an undramatic encounter with Christ. But for Paul, we know that he was traveling on the road to Damascus and Jesus intervened in his life and called out to him by name, not in the flesh, but from heaven and said, Saul, that was his name before he came to know Christ. He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? What, what are you doing? You see, Saul was running 180 degrees away from Jesus. As a matter of fact, Saul had made it his job. Saul, who would become Paul, he was a professional bounty hunter, hunting down people who claimed to be Christians. He, he would hunt them down and at the very least torture them and many times kill them. And it was against that backdrop that Jesus intervened. He said, Saul, what are you doing? Why, why are you persecuting me? I don't know where you are this morning, but my guess is somebody here in this room or maybe at home watching online because they're, they're sick or just skipping church. Somebody here thinks you are beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus. Somebody in this room probably thinks right now, you know what, I'm here, but the fact of the matter is I don't really know. I mean, I can, I'm going to kind of go through the motions a little bit, but let's, the whole complete forgiveness thing, you don't know where I've been. I know where Paul was. I know where Saul, who became Paul, was. And Jesus' grace was sufficient for Saul to become Paul as it was for me, as it can be for you. And, and he's telling the church at Corinth, the, the message of the cross, it, it is foolishness. But he, he makes a really critical, critical statement. He says, it's foolishness for those who are headed for destruction. You need to understand, all of us need to understand and remember, hell is real. Hell is the eternal fulfillment of our earthly desire. If you choose to reject the amazing grace of Jesus and, and walk away from it, that's your choice. But that will be your forever choice. But, but, if you choose to embrace the amazing grace of Jesus when it's revealed to you, when, when you discover it, 
and you step into a relationship with Jesus, you confess your sins and claim his forgiveness and follow him, that will be your forever choice as well. Now, hell is just as real as heaven. Hell is just as real as heaven. But the reality of hell cannot hold a candle to the power of heaven, to the power of the resurrected Christ who rose from the dead with the promise of the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He he gave Jesus to die on the cross and to become our sin. And there on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. He took on himself my sin, your sin. You know that that conversation that maybe you had at the cafeteria lunch table this week where you were kind of, you know, catty and talking about somebody in your class and making sure that you were staying at a certain rung or level on the social ladder at school? That that went to the cross with Jesus. You, You know that time that you... Kind of shaded the truth a little bit about what your software will actually do in, in order to, to close the sale at the end of the quarter and make your numbers. That went to the cross too. Do you, you remember the time that you, you went to your computer when there was nobody else around and you, you began looking at things that you knew didn't honor God, that you knew were denigrating to who you are and who he's created you to be, that you know are damaging to real relationships that you have in your life, that went to the cross as well. You know that time that you just lost it with your kids? That it was understandable, but it was still wrong, and you just like snapped and got kind of twitchy? That, that moment went to the cross as well. This is foolishness to the rest of the world. Paul goes on, and look at what he says. He says in verse 22, he goes, it's foolish to the Jews. Now, remember, Paul was a Jew, so he's not being racist here, okay? He goes, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense, He said, now look, I am a Jew. He said, not only was I a Jew, I I was a Jew among Jews. I knew all of the laws. I kept all of the rules and the regulations. I know the history. I I know that it was God who took Israel out of Egyptian slavery. I know that it was God who was with David when he picked up the five smooth stones in the brook and took one of them and knocked Goliath right above the eyes and it was over. I knew that it was God who rescued Daniel from the lion's den. I I know all of what God has done, and I like those signs. I like to see some power displayed. He said, but you know, the the Greeks, the Greeks are different. The Greeks like to discuss and to debate philosophy and and worldviews. The Greeks gather in the town square, like in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and, and they They put on a turtleneck and light some cloves and drink espresso and debate philosophy, looking for truth. 
and wisdom. But that's all they do. That's all they do is talk. They never bring it down to reality. And so for the Greeks to see Jesus crucified, it's nonsense. For the Jews, the Jews who were looking for a Messiah, a king to ride in, maybe not on a donkey, but they probably were looking for a white horse, but they would have taken the donkey and, and assert political power and throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. But to see Jesus go to the cross and die, never saying a word, never defending himself. But for the Jews, this was offensive. So we've waited centuries. We've waited millennia for the Messiah. You're going to tell me he died? You see, we're just like the Jews and the Greeks. We misunderstand real power. We grossly misunderstand real wisdom. And in the cross of Christ, on this Palm Sunday, we find both. Because when Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty for my sin, my offenses against God. When Jesus did that, it appeared as weakness. But it was the greatest power play the world has ever known. Listen, you can't argue somebody who dies for you. You can argue philosophy. And I'm happy Christians must do the homework and be able to have those conversations with kindness, but also with intelligence and engage. Break out your turtleneck and your espresso. Have the conversation. But you can't argue somebody who dies for you. You can't. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, he says, he says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. A lot of people get bent out of shape, but they forget to read the part about where Jesus died for the church. Women, if your husband would die to himself spiritually, would surrender all of his wants, needs, and desires to yours to help you be everything God created you to be, somebody, you'd be all over that like white on rice. Because you can't argue someone who dies for you. Now, worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom tells us that peace is the product of our position or our possessions. But the wisdom of the cross tells us that our peace is the result of a right relationship with God. Worldly wisdom, because of that claim about position and possession, worldly wisdom will tell you, hey, get yours. Whatever yours is, in business, in home, in your marriage, your dating relationship, just get yours. The wisdom of the cross says give yours. Whatever you have, give it away. And watch how God replenishes what you give away. Worldly wisdom says be nice. Just be nice. Let everybody 
think or believe whatever they want to and just, just be nice. The wisdom of the cross says be kind, but be willing to offend, be willing to be ridiculed. The cross is a stumbling block. Nice, don't feed the bulldog. We're not called to be nice. We're called to be kind and to tell the truth. You're not being kind if you don't tell somebody the truth. And this is foolishness to the world. But it is the wisdom of God. So we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Period. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, then I want to offer to you the invitation of God. It's not mine. It's not this church's. We just get to be the ones who share it with you. To just pray right where you're sitting a prayer of commitment. A prayer of cross taking up to follow Jesus. You just pray right where you're sitting and just say in your own words something like this, silently talking to God. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life and I will follow you from this moment forward with everything that I have. I confess my sin and I claim your forgiveness once and for all. I pray this prayer in your name. Now listen, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And you're in the perfect place to have prayed that prayer because you're surrounded by people who love you and want to help. And so before you leave today, I want to ask you if you will just fill out that connect card in your program. Just fill it out. Indicate there I've committed my life to Christ this week. And before you leave, tear that off at the perforation and just hand it to one of our ushers. Just, just make a brief moment to make a personal connection. But then also as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just prayed that prayer, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand up high over your head as you mark this moment. It's too important to, to just let it go by and let it pass. You mark this moment in your life and in the life of this church because there's nothing more important to us than this moment. And so we honor that. We celebrate that. And as a church, as you put your hands down, we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.